DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80, The Zone. Question of the morning. Summer starting this weekend. What are you going to do? The backcountry, PK. You know there are going to be a lot of people camping, heading to lakes, heading to campgrounds, Mirror Lake Highway, trying to get away from everybody. It's what they do in the summer anyway. Seems like the easiest transition to make. We got a lot of people weighing in on Facebook. Powell, Lake Powell. I'm going to Powell. Fire up the houseboat. Yeah, I think they're just trying to taunt me because I know that Powell sucks and is so overrated. There's not a more vacation spot that's more overrated than Powell. Poo on Powell. That's what I say. Well... Who was it? Yak, was it you? Somebody was telling me that when they had kids, the family doctor said, no, it wasn't you. No, it wasn't. And it was somebody else. Stay away from Lake Powell. It's, uh, it's just uh, totally disgusting. I cut my foot open at Lake Powell. Really? Mm-hmm. You get an infection out of it? Mm, I don't recall. I don't think I had many complications from it. It wasn't fun, though, because you're sticking that in sand broken, and water. Broken beer bottle in the sand? Sharp no, rock in the sand? It's actually barbed wire. Oh. Some buried barb wire. We were playing football in kind of the surf, like that shallow area, and I stepped on it and gashed my foot wide open. It was a Yucky. sucky three rest of the days we were there. Oh. I should have air evac you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> air evac. Fly it in. Let's go. Yacht could have been picked up by a drone and flown out of there. Yeah. Have you by the back of the two, shirt. Two decades ago. Sounds dramatic. Swooping low over Lake Powell. I've gotten to know the neighborhood. I got my I got my five mile walk path down. I got multiple paths now. Got a firm got a firm grasp on all the real estate. <laughs> hemmed hemmed in. Where will you go? <laughs> ah, I'll zig up this street. Never been up this one before. PK, when he mentions the fact I've got a good feel on the real estate, do you feel like he's going to start buying up property? Is that absolutely not? Way out. I've seen some stuff. <laughs> it's like no. Absolutely not. Why not? Way out of my price range. I was telling Yach, there's a street I'd never been on. It's uh, it's north. It's uh, about a mile, mile and a half, and it's on the way to nowhere. So I didn't really had no way, no reason to go there. And I was just walking through the neighborhood one day, and it was like seven thirty, and you know, you got an hour of sun, and I'm just, I was just walking, and I, I zigged and I zagged, made a left, made a right, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow. That's a guest house. Holy cow. <laughs> Come on up, PK. We'll go for a walk, and I'll show you some real estate neither one of us are ever going to live in. Never going to well, buy. But you can, you can walk to it? You can quote. Uh, yeah, it takes uh, 40 minutes, but you can walk to it. It's uphill. All right. You can, uh, as you, uh, every, time you, every time you see another house that's amazing, you can, uh, you can quote your mom and uh, give me another, well, if that ain't the bleeps, or whatever, one of her phrases you love to quote, semi-quote, because you can't completely quote them. <laughs> All right, people, what else are you going to do? Got a lot of people, Wyatt, Wyatt's gone fishing. Gone fishing. You want to get away from people anyway. My brother will be doing. You don't want to be shoulder to shoulder on the river. No, that would be natural not to be. But the point is, I mean, this is summer, and we got to live summer. I saw Jason Whitlock. I follow him on Twitter, and he's moved to California now. He's got a job with Fox. This, uh, what is it? Speak for yourself. Yeah. And he's always driving people crazy because he comes up with these opinions that you're not supposed to have if you're if you look like him. And it's the politically incorrect. And so we had him on the show once. You weren't here. You were gone. But uh, it, was a, it was a good interview. And he was talking about how he said that uh, he goes down to Wilshire Boulevard down there in uh, the West L.A. area. And he was saying that he saw it look like it used to look. It was closer to looking like it used to look, like it normally looks. And it just seems, I was talking about this with my wife yesterday, I think in the next few weeks we're going to see more and more people doing what they normally do. It's one thing to be cooped up in March or April, 
but it's another one to be cooped up in June. See, it just seems like with this in a start of this June around the corner, you were going to see that stuff more and more. I'm seeing, I'm definitely seeing more people on the freeway when I drive to work, you know, radio or TV, and downtown still doesn't look the same. But downtown on a Saturday six weeks ago used to look like a Sunday with bad weather. I mean, it was so empty when I would come out after talking sports on a Saturday. It was, it was unbelievably and, – and, and you do see some people, there aren't multiple parking spots right in front of the building. You know, there's some people parked on the curb on the streets and all that. So you're right. You're, it's definitely trending that way. But I wonder about travel because what a lot of us would do in the summer is, you know, from the people who go to Newport to the uh, people who go to Disneyland – you go to uh, wherever you go, uh, Cali, you know, whatever beach you like, Hawaii, Florida, Caribbean, uh, whatever. Are there going to be huge crowds at the airport? Because the, the, air, the, the airlines and the hotels seem like there'll be a couple of the last ones to come back. And when that happens, and that's a lot of the people that are downtown, you know, there's tons of conventions and we got a lot of hotels downtown. In the winter, it's ski vacations. In the summer, it's conventions. And one of the reasons downtown looks so empty is that's not happening. Hotels are empty. Uh, I think what you'll see is more folks traveling by car. So you won't see that entirely restored. They'll just do other things. Like the fishing, the camping, the Moab, uh, the trip wherever it might be. Uh, Jackson Hole, Star Valley. Places where you can drive. I think you'll see that. So it might not be the big trip. And a lot of those big trips have already been postponed. But I'm going to do something this summer. I'm going to do something that involves an ocean. My original plan is squashed was the week after next. Well, I've moved it now to the first week of August. And if I can't do that, then I'm going to make another adjustment. So one thing, talking to my uh, college roommates during this, to one thing we've done is we've kind of established a semi-regular Zoom call. And a lot of them are spread across Southern California. And, you know, if the beach you want to go to is closed, uh, look around. Because from San Diego to Orange County uh, to L.A. to Santa Barbara, you know, different counties, different rules, different regulations. Exactly. I'll so, find one. Right. Because I'm going. I know you're a big fan of Manhattan Beach, and if that doesn't work, then uh, it, it's just different. Because Manhattan Beach, if you draw a 30-minute, uh, 60-minute, uh, 90-minute circle around Manhattan Beach, how many people are there? You know, Now drive a 30-minute uh, circle around some beach on the central coast uh, from Ventura to Santa Barbara up towards San Luis Obispo. It's really different. You know, there's some huge beaches up there in the Central Coast nobody knows about. Now the water gets colder and, you know, that aren't all the L.A. amenities that you're used to because you live there. But, hey, if you want a beach vacation, it's still something. Well, I have a friend who just bought a house in uh, Capistrano Beach. And when it comes to it, I'm going to hang at his place. <laughs> We've already talked because I was supposed to see, I was supposed to already be there. I was supposed to take a little uh, long weekend in, uh, well, uh, two weeks ago. And obviously that got canceled, so did not go. Uh, and that was going to be obviously if you're going to fly. I mean, if you can only have a long weekend, you're most likely going to fly rather than drive. And if it comes to that, and he wants me to see his house because he just bought it. He just moved in in March. And I want to see it too because he sent me pictures, uh, five minutes from the beach, blah, 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 bike paths, yada, yada. And so I'm excited to do it. So I'm going if I can't do my planned vacation that I had the first week of June that I've now had to push back to August, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to do that. I'm just going to get in the car, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to sanitize myself, and I know that when he's there in his house, he's going to be clean, and I'm just going to stay there. And so I, and once I get there, I'm going to limit the activities that I would traditionally do. Because usually when I would go, I would go for uh, – Pac-12 media days, and they're not having them, and then we'd go to a ball game, either the Angels or the Dodgers. One of those two teams is going to be in town. Well, obviously, that's probably going to change. You know, I'm not going to be able to do that, I don't think. We'll see. If I can, that'd be a bonus. But I'll adjust. But the point I'm making is that people are going to get back. 
there's only so much you can hold them, uh, and they're gonna they're gonna say screw it. That they're they're going to go out to it. That doesn't mean they're going to throw all caution to the wind and be completely and totally unsafe. I'm not saying that by any stretch, but I just think you can only stay inside for so long, particularly when it's summer, and you can modify it, and you can still find other things to do. And I'm looking forward to it. And summer is here. This is the summer weekend. It's now time. There are. Uh... I lived in Santa Barbara for a long time, and I had a friend who took a TV job in San Luis Obispo, and he lived in Pismo Beach. And so I'd go up and see him once in a while. And Pismo Beach, you haven't been there. It's a huge beach. It's beautiful. It's still relatively well-known because of the town. And it can get a little crowded, but it's a huge beach. But there's this stretch of coastline to the south, and we had a reporter at a TV station who went and did a story up there that it's, there's, the beach is so massive that they used, when they shot the, uh, the old movie uh, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, some of the sets they built at this state park that had these huge dunes. I guess that Sand Mountain State Park we have would be like the closest thing you can compare it to. So there's this long stretch of beach, and there's a couple of, there's a, a state vehicular park there, and you can go down and drive, and then beyond that, there's another state beach. So you can go to California beaches, and it doesn't have to look like some trademark shot that you would see of, uh, you know, the beaches in Malibu, right, where there's a gazillion people. And uh, is it Zuma Beach, PK? Yes. Yeah. And you'll just see people packed in there. You're thinking, oh, that beach is dangerous. There's way too many people. Yeah, well, if you go up the coast, it ends up being a totally different story. You can <laughs> you can be out on some deserted section of beach. But oh, for sure. You just can't go, you know, you got to be more than 10 miles away from LAX for that to become true. You know, so you gotta you gotta pick your spots, but you you can find something. All right, DJ and PK, it's ninety seven five and twelve eighty the zone. David Nixon, former BYU linebacker, coming up. The Saints, what are they doing? A quarterback, Taysom Hill, the late bloomer, or maybe depending on how you look at it, the late opportunity getter. Uh, we'll talk with David Nixon about that coming up next. Stay with us. And now, attention, top of the wire on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, Super Bowl championship ring, put up for auction, went for $1,025,000 in addition to the ring. The winner receives a personal visit with Kraft at his Gillette Stadium office in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Ram star Aaron Donald says he wants to have fans in the stands at NFL games this fall. He says the fans will give you that extra juice when you're tired and fatigued. When you make that big play and you're 80,000 fans going crazy, that pumps you up. The NFL is making plans to experiment in the 2023 season with new officiating positions that would be similar to a sky judge. And momentum is growing for the Eagles' proposed change for the onside kick where teams have one play to gain 15 yards from their own 25-yard line if they want to retain possession of the ball. Top of the Wire brought to you by Action Plumbing, Heating, and Electrical. Spring into action now. Mention this ad and receive $33 off any service. Call Action today at 801-833-3333. That's 801-833-3333. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. Mark Arlen, Athletic Director at the University of Utah. Have you had many conversations with Tom Homo in regards to the potential season opener? Well, I'm checking in on Tom just to make sure he's working. <laughs> um, sometimes he answers a call. Uh, sometimes he's not. Sometimes I hear a backswing. Yep. No, Tom's been great. He and I have spoken on how we're each approaching this, how we're leading our respective organizations in this very challenging times. Um, but we're particularly talking about about return to our facilities and, and safety protocols. And we're both working with the Jazz, for example, getting best practices and others. So, you know, it was, I've always said with BYU, you know, we take on those guys and gals on the field and courts. We want to get after them. But in something like this, it is pure teamwork. Hanson Scotting, weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time to welcome in David Nixon, former BYU linebacker. And he joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. David, good morning. DJ, how you doing? We're doing well this morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Just uh, 
you know, excited for a nice weather day. I think it's going to be a, you know, this morning's going to be nice. Head out for some golf, get enjoy the links, and eat up this uh, this this nice day. So we have multiple questions for you, but let's start with this one and uh, Taysom Hill. And when you hear the reports that uh, they think they might have another Lamar Jackson, there's another Lamar Jackson? I kind of thought he was one of a kind. Another Lamar Jackson, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, with, with how close I am with Taysom, uh, I, I buy into the hype. I mean, uh, you know, I, was, I had a front row seat to his career at BYU and then, of course, uh, what he's been able to do with the Saints. And I, I can, you know, I, obviously with what they paid in this offseason, they, they do believe they have kind of an next Lamar Jackson. They've got a guy they can use, utilize as a weapon, put him back there as a starting quarterback eventually and uh, let him do his thing. So uh, I, I'm excited for him. Obviously, the, the contract was a big indicator of, of, like I said, of what they believe in him. Um, and the coaches have pretty much indicated to him that he's he's the second stringer this year. And it's, it's his job. If, if something were to happen to Drew, he's he's the next guy up. And so – um, I think he's pretty excited heading into the season. Uh, if there is a season, I think there will be a season, but uh, it has to be determined. But um, for right now, I think he's in a great position there in New Orleans. Uh, hold on a second here, David. I just need to, to have something here. The Jazz have put out a statement that Jerry Sloan has died, so I want to put that out there. It's obviously uh, a tough situation there. Uh, but anyway, I felt that was uh, needed to be said right now. Uh, getting back yeah, to, I was going to say I'd heard that um, his health wasn't wasn't great. I think yeah. Carl Malone or something had, had mentioned to have everybody reach out. It's, uh, it's actually terrible news for you know, here in Utah. I, I didn't grow up a Jazz fan, but since moving here and going to college, I have, and uh, I've seen Jerry Stone at events and whatnot. And definitely the legend. So um, uh, rest in peace to him and prayers out to his family. Absolutely, well said, David. Thank you for saying that. Uh, you, I don't. I think most people know if they don't that uh, your sister married Taysom. So when you say you're close to him, obviously you have a, a relationship there, and you've had that for a number of years. I mean, this kid is a, a one of a kind athlete. There's no question about that. I mean, it's just amazing to to watch him just run, jump, do all the stuff that he has uh, been able to do. Uh, what have you seen from him? to be able to develop himself into potentially having the opportunity, at least according to what we're hearing with Sean Payton, as far as him being a starting quarterback in the NFL? Well, you got to go back to his college days and, and remember that, uh, you know, this is a kid who almost every single offseason was rehabbing. So while most other quarterbacks in the country are sitting there working on their crafts, refining their skills, this is a guy who's just trying to get his, health, his body healthy. Um, and, and going through surgeries and taking time. And so in college, you didn't have a chance to go out there and, and spring ball and really compete and, and get better as a quarterback because he's too busy in the training room trying to get his body healthy after basically sacrificing a week in, week out uh, as a quarterback. And so now that he got to the NFL, he's been relatively healthy. He's had a few deans here and there. Um, uh, but he, And frankly, he's had less exposure. Uh, he's not playing 70 you know, plays a game at quarterback. He's playing more like 20. Uh, as as kind of a utility man and on special teams, et cetera. So less exposure to, to get to get uh, hurt, but um, nonetheless, he, he's he's maintained a, a healthy body and he's been able to work as a quarterback. And frankly, he's in a great offensive scheme with Sean Payton. And uh, Sean Payton is, if you know him about, you know, as offensive coordinator, the head coach, it's a guy who gets very creative, um, and and uh, he's crafted an offense around Taysom. And, and and if you look at Taysom's utilization year in year out. It's, he's become more and more involved in the offense every year. And so, um, I, you know, I think Sean, when you look at Sean talking about Taysom, I think he realizes uh, he's got this, and he's referred to as like a shiny new toy, um, something that he can go out there and, and kind of play with and craft. And uh, that's a great thing about Taysom. I think he's got the qualities of an NFL quarterback, but you can also utilize him as a receiver, as a runner, and kind of put him anywhere on the field. So, um, you know, I think this year will be a big year for Taysom, being the number two uh, behind Drew, continue to learn from him. Uh, and then prep them for, for this next year. I mean, I will say this in the NFL and college, the, the jump between being the third stringer and the second stringer is huge. You get a ton more reps. And so it's a little unfortunate. The OTAs obviously have been scratched because of uh, what's going on. So he hasn't had those quality reps. But uh, come fall ball, I, I know he'll be excited to get out there and, uh, like I said, get those reps. So – I'm curious to what you said there, because I totally agree with you about second and third string. It's a huge jump. And when I saw the deal Taysom got, 
I thought he's the second string guy. But Jameis Winston comes in on a one year deal. He's got to be thinking he's the second string guy. Do you have any insight into what those guys have been told, how that might play out? Yeah, I'll just say this. I think when you look at the contract amounts, uh, NFL, it's all about money. And, and they value and they basically can tell you how much you're worth based off what they pay you. Uh, Taysom's on a two-year, $21 million deal. So, uh, you know, about $9, 10000000 million, ten ten and a half a year, you know, when you mess with the guaranteed money. Um, when Jameis Winston's on a one-year deal for $1 million, right? So uh, Taysom's getting paid nine, ten times as much. So it's pretty, pretty – uh, pretty strong case that, that Taysom's the second stringer, and uh, I think it's pretty obvious in, in that sense. With that being said, uh, it's hard to, to put aside what, what James has done. Yes, he struggled last year with interceptions, but he's a guy who, who threw for over 5,000 yards. So he's got real-time NFL experience as a starter, um, and I think that's something that quarterback group can draw on. Um, but ultimately, I think when the franchise, when you look at Drew, this being pretty much his last year, as they've all announced, uh, that you know they're they're looking to the future, and I think the contract length and the contract amounts uh, indicate where they're headed. Do you know that, uh, given the fact that you just put, with all the stuff that you just said, how much they intend to use him then on the other stuff outside of quarterback? No, and I think that's still kind of up in the air as well. I, I know that they want to continue to put him on the field. Uh, I think I read something the other day how Sean Payton says. I mean, when you when Taysom goes on the field. Our whole team lights up. Everyone comes out to base. They want to see what he's going to do next. And, and I was down there for uh, the playoff game this past year against the Vikings, and uh, the stadium was dead. I mean, the, the, the Saints couldn't move the ball, and all of a sudden, Taysom sparked with back-to-back big plays, and the place lit up. And, and that's the type of player that Taysom is and the capability he has. He can turn the game on his head that quickly with a big run or a big pass, wherever it may be. Um, because he's so versatile. So, you know, I, I think the, the team rides around him in that sense. So it's hard to keep him off the field, even though he is the number two. And frankly, I think that's probably why Jameis Winston is there is for some, you know, surety in case Drew goes, does go down. You've, you've got two guys that can come in instead of just one. Um, and so, you know, I think they'll continue to rotate him in and, and keep on the field because he's too valuable to not put on the field. Um, but, you know, knowing, like I said, with what's going on in the future, I bet you they safeguard him just a little bit more. You know, as you check his numbers, uh, check Taysom's numbers, uh, the completion percentage is always the issue. And in the NFL, because of the blitzes and the pressure and trying to keep quarterbacks healthy, there are a lot of short throws that can be high percentage throws, but they really do judge you on that accuracy going down the field. What has Taysom done to try and improve that? What will he continue to do to try and improve that? And I have heard from people who say that is one of the hardest things for a quarterback to improve. Yeah, you know, going back to his the off seasons and those preseason games, um, if you go back and look at the film, he actually has great touch on the ball, and this is something that I think he has developed since he got to the the league. You know, better coaches as far as uh, quarterback specific coaches. Not that BYU doesn't, but um, you know, when you get to the NFL, you're twenty four seven, eat, sleep, drink football, um, and the coaches the same way. And so, um, I think he's had some good mentors in that respect. Uh, but uh, you know. I, like I said, I look back to his preseason games, which, once again, I know he's going against sometimes second and third string defenses. Um, but he's, he's done a great job. I think the one game he was 16 of 20 throwing, um, and, and a few others he's, he's done j- just as well. So I think that's something he continues to develop. He understands that he's got uh, strong points of his game and points he got to work on. And that's something that, you know, Taysom, if you know Taysom, he's one of the most competitive kids I've ever been around in my life. Um, I've been around a lot of, a lot of athletes. And there's uh, a kid that understands he's got to refine his craft and work his craft and uh, that's something he does constantly. So um, I'm sure he'll get that all figured out and handled. I know when people look at the numbers of Taysom, he doesn't have a lot of attempts uh, in the NFL in the regular season. Uh, and when he does, maybe it's not what, up to par what they think. But keep in mind that when he does come in, sometimes it is gadget plays where he's throwing a 50-yard bomb and he's trying to stretch the field a little bit and draw it downfield. So those numbers can be skewed and, and maybe don't show the whole picture. But, um, but I mean, like I said, this next season is going to be a big season for him, especially with – with the fact that he'll, he's probably going to get more reps at quarterback um, to kind of try to try to phase him in towards next year. Uh, and, um, you know, he'll have more opportunities to showcase his talents, and I think he's up to the task. His talents really are enormous, as I was saying. I'm, I'm interested to see how, how it will be. I really hope the opportunity comes, and it looks like it's going to be here, whether it's uh, this year, next year, whenever it is. How is he going to be 
when he's in that pocket because the NFL, you need to be able to be in the pocket. You need to be able to move around, obviously, but you need to be able to throw. But this guy is such an unbelievable runner that I get why he would think, oh, I can take off because I could beat this guy and this guy and this guy because usually he can. So how is he going to be able to find that balance between being able to throw and knowing that, hey, I'm faster and bigger than most of these guys that are trying to chase me? <laughs> well, I think his mentality changes a little bit. In fact, we've talked about this. I mean, the difference from going from college to NFL, uh, the linebackers, D-line, uh, secondary is is huge. I mean, it, these guys are all fast, and they they can all track you down, and they'll put a they'll put a hit on you uh, if, if if they get to you. And so he understands that. I think um, you know moving forward, when the time does come, he understands he's going to have to send the pocket. He can't just take off every time because eventually your body's going to just wear down, right? You can't take that many hits in a game. Um, but it is tough when it's fourth, you know, third and four, and and you need four yards to pick up. He's got the ability to make one, two guys miss easily and get a first down with his legs. Uh, the question is, can he be patient and sit in that pocket? Uh, I, I think he can. I think Sean Pay will design plays that allows him kind of a two-way go uh, to get out there and, and, and hopefully complete a short dig of sorts and then get out and run as well. But um, you know, that's that's to be determined. But uh, you know, I, I think that Sean has, he has the perfect recipe for chasing. He's been around him for three years now. Um, and he knows exactly how to utilize them. So they'll figure out a way to, to, to make it all work. David, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on this morning. We're all looking looking forward to the start of football season and see how this plays out. Thanks a lot. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, guys. David Nixon, former BYU linebacker, joining us right here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Well, PK, you can plan a show and you can have whatever you want lined up, but sometimes events change. And, uh, you know, Carl Malone gave us all a, a heads up with a comment a few days ago that Jerry wasn't doing well. And now the big news of the morning, Jerry Sloan is a, a legend for the Jazz, an NBA Hall of Famer. He is, uh, he has passed away, and we're going to spend uh, the rest of this show, and I suspect the other shows uh, today will spend the rest of this day reflecting on everything he meant to jazz fans, a bunch of great memories there, sadness of his loss, but, uh, man, what a legend for the club, huh? He really was. He really is. I mean, he is somebody who is just the Utah Jazz personified, man. Everything that the jazz are about is embodied in Jerry Sloan. It, it is as simple as that. I don't know that I can recall, and maybe if I had to really think about it, you take what an organization is about, and then you take its coach. And if there is a greater connection, I can't think of it. And maybe you have to go way back. But what Jerry Sloan was about was absolutely the 100% essence of what the Jazz have been able to be about because they're not this glamour franchise and this sexy name and all this other stuff. Jerry had no time for that. He had no interest in that. He was about winning basketball games. My gosh, that's exactly what he was about. And he was no nonsense. And he was about hard work and all this stuff that sounds cliche but really isn't. It is the essence of the organization, and that is the essence of Jerry Sloan. I had an opportunity to be around him after he retired, and it's easily, easily one of the highlights of my life to be around him, sitting in a van with him and driving from the airport in Mexico to the hotel and just being in his presence. I don't want to overstate it and be so dramatic, but just being around this guy who was a big-time coach. He could have been as big a celebrity as anybody out there if he wanted to be, but he wanted to be a basketball coach. That's what he was. I, you're going to have to interrupt me because I can go, go on, on and on. I, can, <laughs> I yes, know, right? Yes, but, yes, exactly. But but it was his it was his essence, and uh, yeah, he loved it. As a player, assistant coach head coach, in his Hall of Fame speech, uh, he talked about how much he loved basketball and how much it had given him in life. And uh, ESPN has cut in now. They've got a uh, file video up of Jerry as he passes away at the age of 78. And uh, there he is with Phil Johnson sitting side by side as they did for just years and years and years. You know, they had the Dick Mata tie and that kind of got them together. And, uh, man, they were an awesome team. Yes, and they really reflected. You name me a coach who reflected, the team reflected what the coach was about more than Jerry Sloan. 
Boy, I don't think the you only, can. The only two names I came up with were Popovich, who stood right here in the arena and said how, when he was just getting started with the Spurs, and they didn't have any titles yet, and said, we want to copy what the Jazz have done. So... I don't know if you can say there's more there. I mean, there's there's a lot of similarities there. That's a good there. example. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities there on purpose because Popovich just came out and said, you know, this is why we're doing it. This is who we want to be. This is who we want the organization to be. And the other one, you, you got to go to Red Auerbach. You know, just you know what he did with the Celtics. And man, I'm living on the other coast. And uh, yeah, I didn't think of the Celtics without thinking of Red Auerbach. And you know, San Diego to Boston, how do you get further apart than that? So though, Popovich and, and Auerbach were the two that jumped to my mind right away. I don't, I don't know if there'd be others, but there can't be many. It's, if there's a list, it's a short one. Yeah, and I could go across any sport. He really embodied exactly what it was about. And he was, it was such an, it was really a privilege to be in his presence and to, to cover him. And, I, and I've got a, just a few little examples of how this guy was just so professional. You know, from a media standpoint, I didn't cover the Jazz every day, but uh, when the college basketball season would end, I would usually cover a couple of road games. Steve Loom was covering the Jazz at the time, and he would take off because he knew the playoff were, was going to gear up. And uh, so he was going to be working every day. So I'd usually go down to L.A. and cover a Clipper game because Steve wasn't a dummy and it may make me cover, cover a game that had an 8.30 start. <laughs> this is up against deadline. And I can remember being down in Los Angeles one time. And, and so you have to come up with some stuff, and you got to come up with some stuff before the game. And they let you talk to them for about 45 minutes, and then the locker room closes 90 minutes ahead. And I got one up to Jerry. I said, Jerry, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. He said, but I got to do something. Uh, I'm, I'm busy right now. Get back to me. I'll meet you around the corner in 20 minutes. And a look of panic came over my face because I knew that that was after the locker room would be open. And he looked at me, and he, and he saw the look on my face, and, he, and I didn't even say anything. And he said, Oh yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> Just meet me around the corner, and because they have, they literally have a countdown clock in the locker room. Yeah, and guys can be jerks about it, and they'll yell at you to get out once that thing hits the, the ninety-minute mark. And so I looked at the clock, and Jerry saw me. He said, "Oh yeah, don't don't worry about that. We'll just go around the corner. There's a little office there. I give you what you need." And the the amount of professionalism that he displayed, and because you know you've been blown off by coaches. Left and right, constantly. They wouldn't. They had no time for you. Jerry always had time, and he always had something. He, he, if you had a question, he 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 would give you an answer. Oh my gosh! That's, I mean, it was the, just unbelievable. The number of times that uh, he leaned on that trash can by that big concrete uh, pillar outside the locker room. Uh, they don't they don't even do shoot around in that building anymore. That's in the arena. That's where Jerry did shoot around. Now they do shoot around at their practice facility. But in those days, you just lean on that trash can until the last visiting reporter was gone. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, didn't matter. He had time. All right, uh, we're getting a lot of tweets. Uh, I think Bentley Mitchell with a good one here. Uh, Jerry's a legend. They'll, I'll edit a little bit. It's a pretty long tweet. There'll never be another like him. Uh, rest in peace doesn't quite fit Jerry. More like rest in happiness as he climbs back on his tractor with John Deere hat on. I like it. Yeah. All right, uh, Phil Johnson, who I just mentioned. I mean, he and Jerry just shoulder to shoulder for so many years. Phil's going to join us coming up at 9 o'clock. Stay with us on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. I was in my early 20s and a newlywed when you became the head coach. And so I feel like I was able to, to look up to you. And in many ways, you were a father figure in, in terms of the way I learned from you, the lessons you taught. 
taught me. For example, you uh, taught me the importance of hard work. I learned the importance of having a plan and sticking to it. I also learned about the importance of executing the basics and executing the game plan better than the other guys if you want to win. Thank you for your many contributions over the years and for the role that you've played in making the Utah Jazz one of the most respected franchises in the NBA. And thank you for letting us honor you. I would just say as a player, when you're first coming in and being a young player, I don't think we understand the magnitude of uh, things. And maybe I didn't at the time, but when it's all said and done, I look back and it's just, to me, everything just lined up perfect for me as a, as a kid from Louisiana coming to, uh, I thought it was a city initially, but somebody reminded me it was a state. <laughs> and Coach Lee reminded me uh, uh, through the jazz parade that it wasn't for me. <laughs> it was the days of uh, 47, you know. I just can't believe my good fortune. To be able to play under Jerry Sloan, first of all, a person who I do admire and I respect. We've had an interesting relationship, like a father-son relationship. It's like a big brother relationship. It's like a friend relationship. And I don't know if you get to go through life with many of those opportunities to have that. And uh, and I have it right here in one man. And uh, he's never been given anything in his life that he hasn't earned. And uh, tonight's no different. I'm very proud of everything you've done. And I'm honored to be here, Coach. And I know you used to always tell me, you know, when are you going to get satisfied? You and Coach Jones used to tell me. And I'll tell you now, I didn't want to disappoint you. I really didn't. I didn't want to disappoint you. I didn't want to disappoint the coaching staff because you guys made it possible for me to be the person I was. And I felt when I came here, I was a, a young boy and I grew up to be a young man, good or bad or indifferent. But I just want to say that, you know, playing hard was easy because you played the game. Coach, you played the game. You guys did it. And I didn't want to disappoint you guys. I just want to say I'm, I'm honored to be here. It's, it's a great day. I'm finally glad you guys were able to twist his arm enough for him to do it. And uh, Coach, we, you know, we love you. I love you, man. And like I said, you, you're the best. I've been blessed. I thought I was a great coach till we lost these guys. Things kind of fell apart there for a while, but uh, I was the most lucky guy in the world to have the opportunity to coach two guys that's willing to pay the price of being good every day. Uh, Frank, you're a little bit late. Oh, you already talked about you. <laughs> <laughs> that was your first thing. You got a time. You're exactly right. Those are things I, I was listening to TV the other day and somebody said uh, about me being set up to the East Coast trip around Christmas time. Frank set that East Coast trip up and it worked very well. I've gotten an awful lot of credit for what he taught me and what he helped me with and uh, I'm very thankful. Ah, the legendary voices of the, the jazz franchise right there. You heard Frank Layden, who apparently was a little late to the old press conference, so Jerry Sloan gave him a hard time, and you heard the coach, <laughs> and you heard Stockton and Malone, I think that was Greg Miller at the start of the segment there, and that was all a few years ago, back in 20,000, or 20,000, 2014, 2014, when they were uh, giving Jerry the banner in the arena, and everybody got together in a nice ceremony there, and... Uh, raised the banner up into the roof, and a lot of people talked about him. And, you know, you hear Stockton alone talk about timing, you know, and timing in sports. Nobody does anything individually. Uh, if we learned anything watching the last dance is Jordan had three losing seasons at the start because, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the group around him. You don't do anything by yourself. And Carl talking about how everything lined up perfectly. You know, and came together for a great era of jazz basketball. And we're reflecting on it now, if you're just joining us, uh, because Jerry passed away today. The Jazz uh, issuing a statement a little while ago uh, that Jerry uh, passed away. He uh, had not been doing well. I think his decline had been pretty well documented. He was 78 years old. But uh, PK, it just brings up, just to, for, the, for the people who followed the team, uh, maybe since the day they got here, but who certainly got on board in the 80s and 90s. This just takes us back to such a great time in jazz history and a lot of awesome memories. Absolutely. Jerry Sloan resonated with every single person who calls themselves a jazz fan. It, it's inseparable. It's impossible to not have felt a connection to this man. It's, it's just literally impossible. Even if you didn't know him, we were fortunate enough to know him a little bit. I got to know him a little bit after he retired when they did that Jazz Beach Bash and, and, and spent some time with him. And one of the great, great honors of my life is when he lived out in Riverton and he would go on a morning walk. And he told me that he listened to our show on the morning walk. And I was humbled. I was really humbled. I, oh, my gosh, i got to watch what I say. <laughs> <laughs> they always knew what you said anyway. <laughs> they took it for what it was. I know, but Jerry Sloan is listening. I know. No, I, I got to sit up straight, <laughs> man. Know. 
Are you? I don't. I, I'm Malone, and I'm not. I don't have the relationship with those guys that they had. Obviously, I don't have it. But when Jer, when Carl Malone is saying, I didn't want to disappoint you. I, when Jerry told me, looked me right in the eye and said, "Yeah, I listen to your show on the morning when I take my morning walk," and he kind of, you know, he laughed a little bit, like Johnny Miller once told me that, <laughs> and you know, because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a. I'm a blowhard. Let's call it like it is. I can be out there and say stupid, wild things. And he kind of smirked. Yeah, I listen. And I, oh, man, I better not say anything stupid. I, I, I don't want to disappoint Jerry Sloan. Are you kidding me? I've looked up to him, and I didn't grow up here. But when I came here and got to be around him, and I saw his work ethic day after day after day, one time I'm interviewing him, and I'm talking about the uh, the merits and what it takes to be a champion. And he said, I don't know. I'm not one. I said, yes, you are. <laughs> you absolutely are. What are you talking about? You're not. You are. <laughs> I went right back at him. We were, and it was courtside. We were, and it was before a game. He just happened to be outside uh, instead of in the locker room. It was out by the bench, and the teams were warming up, and I was talking to him. And every freaking time I would go into the media room, he would be in there with Phil Johnson. We're going to have Phil Johnson coming up. He would be in there eating dinner. Yeah. And no matter who he was sitting with, Walt Frazier, whomever it might be, he'd catch my eye, and he'd give me, a, like, a little heads up. Every time. That's unbelievable. DJ, PK, and we are joined now by Phil Johnson, longtime Jazz assistant coach, also a former coach of the year in the NBA and head coach with the Kings, and, of course, Jerry's longtime tag team partner. Uh, before we get to the, some of the great memories, first condolences, Phil, because obviously you and Jerry were very close. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we were, we were uh, more than just coaches together. We were very good friends, and... Uh, Spent a lot of time together over the years, and I've known him for 52 years. So uh, I met him in 1968. So it's been a long, it's been a long haul. You talk about Coach uh, Jerry Sloan, and, and we just had Carl Malone not want to disappoint him, and you were around him. How much did he bring out the best of people in terms of? Yeah, I don't want to disappoint this man because he's given everything he has. Well, I think that's really important because he was committed to what he was doing and he was he's he was very good with people. Uh, you know, everybody had this misconception about him as he was this rough, tough guy, but he was very actually very good with people and the way he treated people on and off the floor. Uh and uh he he was uh what what he did was he gave he gave everything he had and uh and the players recognized that and he was very honest with them and so that's uh, really uh, that's really what it was all about. So you met him in '68. You coached against him as a player because I was actually looking at some of that uh, video of 1975 playoff series. Uh, yeah. And you were coaching against Dick Mata. Uh, yeah. Was Was Mata the one who kind of brought you together? Did you both know him? Well, How first, well, well. See, I was I was Dick Mata's assistant at Weber State, and mm-hmm. Dick got the head coaching job at at Chicago. And uh, he didn't have an assistant coach. And so uh, when he started training camp and rookie camp and training camp, uh, I went back and was actually his assistant. So I coached the team. So that's when I met Jerry. I was really, really an assistant coach uh, with the Bulls while I was head coach at, uh, with Weber State because it would happen in the fall. And I'd just go back for a couple of weeks uh, and help him with training camp. And so that's when I met Jerry. I had the opportunity to go with you guys down there to Mexico for a couple of times and being around him. You talk about how he treated people. He was a big-time celebrity, but you're absolutely right. And I'm not sure people realized how funny he was and how conversational he was. <laughs> Could you amplify that a little bit? Yeah, well, he just had – he was just so – he was so country. Uh, we we had a relationship that was – because our backgrounds were so similar. I grew up in southern Idaho, and he grew up in southern Illinois. And our backgrounds were very similar, and we were just uh, kind of country, and uh, that's why we hit it off so well. And, and he had a lot of old homespun uh, stories to tell and this and that about growing up, and, and uh, he, he had a, a great sense of humor. I think of all the things I miss from, co- from being around uh, was not, is not the coaching day-to-day of coaching players. It was being around the coaches and how much in, we enjoyed – talking and exchanging stories and 
and having a uh, you know uh, uh, conversations about what happened to us and things that happened and it was always good and he was very good at that he was uh, he was very good to people and he was uh, he was always open to talk to them McLeansboro, Illinois, although uh, reading up on Jerry, who's was actually from uh, 16 miles outside of McLeansboro, a little place called Gobbler's Knob, and he was one of 10 kids. His dad passed away when he was four. Uh, as he said in his Hall of Fame speech, it was a one-room schoolhouse, and the teacher was the basketball coach. Can you describe, how often did you go back with him to that area, and can you describe what it was like and how it formed him? Yeah, well, I spent a lot of time, when I was his assistant coach in Chicago, I actually went down and and uh, helped him put in his crops, uh, driving tractors and and uh, putting, putting his crop in uh, went on his farm in southern Illinois. I've been to it where he grew up several times. Yeah, he talked, he talked a lot about uh, what the one-room schoolhouse or schoolroom and the teacher and so forth, and that on his first teams, the, the, they didn't have enough boys to play, so the girls played on the boys' team. So he, he uh, that was an interesting thing. But we, we talked a lot about that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time back there. I know I know the area very well. I haven't been there back there for a while, but, but uh, I, I spent a lot of time there. Also, Coach, in trying to explain how Jerry Sloan was an ambassador for the NBA, I think is so understated and it's not appreciated because you got some of these coaches that don't want to be bothered and they give uh, brief answers and whatnot. Jerry Sloan sold the NBA at all times in his interviews, never ducked anything. Could you amplify that too? Well, that was the thing about him. See, he was called the original bull when he went to Chicago. He was the first player picked in the expansion draft. Johnny Kerr had played with him in Baltimore, and Johnny Kerr became the head coach of the expansion Chicago Bulls. And the first player he picked was Jerry Sloan. And Jerry went to Chicago, and here's a, here's a country boy from southern Illinois, and he would spend time with the press. The press loved him because he, win or lose, he would, he would talk to them and explain what happened during the game, and so really had such a great reputation with the press, and that carried over into the with the people. So the people uh, really appreciated him because of his openness and the way he talked. And so many players of that day, if they, if if you lost, several of them would just go in the shower and wouldn't talk to the press. <laughs> well, see, he yeah. was he was very open and and did a good job with that. Jerry was a uh, two-time All-Star with the Bulls. And the one year in Baltimore you mentioned, then 10 years with the Bulls. Now, people here know him as a coach, but compare Jerry maybe to some other players we might be familiar with to kind of tell us you know, who he was over his 11-year career. Well, I don't compare him to anyone because he's unique. And he, is, uh, he was just very competitive. He always said he didn't have any talent, and it was all by effort. Of course he had talent. He had... Uh, he had tremendous instincts and uh, tremendous uh, drive and toughness. One of the best defenders I ever saw play basketball, uh, and probably the greatest offensive rebounder I've ever seen from the guard position. He was just relentless. He had great hands, uh, great vision. Uh, defensively, he was uh, he was just unbelievable, and offensively. He was uh, he was somewhat of a streak shooter. He was he was he would really utilize the offense uh, a great deal. He would come off the screens, get open using the offense, and that's where when Dick Mata came to coach them, he he instigated and installed an offense that was involved with setting screens. And first of all, he would set good screens, and second of all, he would come off screens very well. And so he utilized that offensively. And so he was just a really good basketball player, and he, he could dominate players defensively. There are several players that didn't want to see him coming because he was something else <laughs> defensively. I think one of the amazing things, and there's a, we, can, we can have you on the phone here for the next 10 hours and talk about all the amazing things, but to me one of the amazing things is when he was coaching the Jazz all those years, how he took guys who were role players, put them in positions to succeed to the point where they went other places, they weren't nearly as effective. And I have to obviously include you in that list because you were right there. Explain how you guys were able to take guys who really didn't have a whole lot of value to other teams in the league, but when they were with the Jazz had a ton of value. 
Well, you know, we had really good players here at the time, and so they, they, uh, a lot wasn't expected of several of those guys you're talking about. And so you could utilize what they could do because you didn't need a, an all-around great player because you had some very, you had a couple of really good basketball players in John and Carl, obviously. And so that, that's really part of it is utilizing the, the specific skill that they, they might have and that helps your team, and so that's 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 the, you recognize that and try to utilize that with your team, and so that's what happened with several guys. A lot of jazz fans uh, can see Jerry right now in their mind, and if you're just joining us, Jerry Sloan just passed away this morning at the age of 78, and Phil Johnson's joining us, his long longtime tag team partner. And a lot of jazz fans can close their eyes and see Jerry just going off on referees or players. But he had a side of him that was really a softer side. And I talked to uh, the longtime NBA coaches as they came through this year, gathering their thoughts on Jerry. And Rick Carlisle, I mean, now he's won the championship with the Mavericks, and he's kind of a made guy in Dallas. But he got really reflective and told this story about how Jerry – basically opened a training camp to him when he'd gotten fired and he was between jobs. And I kind of thought that was Jerry going back on his Bulls experience. He had to be a little lost when the Bulls uh, let him go as head coach. Can you talk a little bit about the, the softer side and the way he would look out for someone in a situation the way Rick was? Yeah, well, I, you know, I just, I, I just knew, I knew all sides of him. And uh, the way he treated people, uh, he would, uh, how he treated the ushers, at that the, with the jazz or the custodians or or people that uh, a lot of times uh, celebrities just walk by but uh, he was very open to talk to everyone uh, we we just lost a, a, a an usher that used to sit behind our bench his name Paul and he sat behind the bench and I talked to him several times and he just passed away not long ago and uh, how how Jerry treated him and how he treated uh, the people involved that's just how he was. He was very considerate of other people, and he uh, definitely had a soft side. And uh, uh, but uh, the the thing people saw was how he 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 was competitive during the game. Well, rarely did he get on players that much. Honestly, I mean he was. Uh, I mean, yeah, he'd get in some players sometimes, but the ninety percent of the time there was it was a very talking to them, trying to get them to do what was necessary, and so forth. So. Really, there's uh, every person has all sides to them, obviously. But he was he was very good with that. So, anyway, when you, when you see uh, you've been around professional sports for so long, and we hear that you know players or teams take on the characteristics of a coach, is there a better example than the Jazz taking on the characteristics of Jerry Sloan? No, that's about the way it was. <laughs> the team, uh, you know, defensively, uh, he he spent a lot of time defensively and aggressiveness, trying to come play hard. That came from the top as well, Larry Miller, uh, and that that's why he always appreciated Jerry so much. It's very they're very similar with their their tenacity and competitiveness, and so that's what Jerry uh, what Larry Miller loved about Jerry Sloan. And so that's that was what this fan this this franchise was built on, and it wasn't just Jerry. It was uh, it was from top to bottom as far as, you know, and, that, and that's what it exemplified, and that's what uh, we were kind of proud of. Phil Johnson joined us here, longtime Jazz assistant coach. What is it about Jerry? Because you you were an accomplished head coach. You were the NBA coach of the year, and you coached playoff teams. What was it about Jerry that made you not just want to say, okay, I'm going to be an assistant coach and work for this guy, but never go back down the road of being a head coach again? Well, uh, you know, we, there was a commitment uh, by both of us. Uh, we were very loyal to each other. He knew and trusted me. He knew I was going to, uh, whatever I had on my mind, I was going to tell him. I was not going to go behind his back and try to, to to sway someone else by how much I knew talking to someone else. If I had something, I was going to talk to him about it. And he was the same way with me. So we had an unbelievable relationship from that standpoint. And we just got along. Uh, we We became really good friends over the years, more than just coaches and just really good friends. And... Uh, so that's uh, that's the part that 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 I'm that I'm going to miss is that relationship. Of course, over the last 
since we quit coaching, I obviously didn't have as much time with him. And so, uh, you know, we didn't spend nearly as much time together. Uh, but uh, the Jerry we knew, uh, Trina left us uh, several several months ago, actually, because he just wasn't the same uh, and so forth. But uh, when I would go talk to him, he could remember things and so forth. The last time I was able to see him a couple of days ago, he was unresponsive as far as seeing me and uh, knowing I was there. Uh, but uh, but I got a chance to see him before he passed away. How did you know when, oop, I better get up off this bench and go save Jerry because he's in trouble? <laughs> uh, I had an instinct about it. <laughs> I kind of knew him. <laughs> and I really didn't want to take over the team at that point in the game, you know. So uh, I, I really would rather have him be there. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, – it was part of the job, and that's what a lot of people remember me for, but uh, I did a little bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sure, certainly. <laughs> you know, I always thought that one thing, uh, you know, there's so many good memories of Jerry that come uh, flooding back, but his Hall of Fame speech, you know, the, just by its nature, the Hall of Fame, right, that crowd's going to be diverse. It's going to be white. It's going to be black. It's going to be centri- city. It's going to be country. It's going to be young. It's going to be old. It's going to be people who grew up in the U.S., but it's going to be people who grew up all over the world. And I thought as Jerry told his story, on the one hand, you know, people knew him in the finals and the Bulls and all that, but people also didn't know him because he was away in Salt Lake City. And I thought he really held the room that night. It got very quiet in there as people kind of absorbed, you know, who is this guy and how did he he get there? I don't don't think we think of Jerry as a public speaker, but, man, he really owned the room that night. Yeah, he had had a couple of great mentors. His his college coach, Eric McCutcheon, and he gave him a huge amount of credit. And Dick Mata, he patterned the way he coached a great deal after uh, after playing with Dick and really respected him. And so, yeah, he was, uh, a lot of people didn't think he was a, uh, you know, I mean, they didn't realize that he was a very good speaker. And he that, that day was very, he gave a lot of credit to a lot of people. And that was what was great about it. When, when you're coaching, you come across people from all walks of uh, backgrounds, and as you get older, the age gap, I mean, the players basically age-wise stay the same, but you don't. You age. How was he able to keep that connection as the players remained basically in their 20s and early 30s, and he grew older? Well, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do, and you have to adjust your game and uh, the way you coach a little bit as time goes on. But he really didn't change a lot. They knew that coming in that we were going to be kind of old school. And uh, but he was he was very good with young players. Uh, he gave them great advice on on how to uh, take care of themselves and get ready to play that type of thing. He was very good with young players, and so he just developed over the years. And his coaching just just uh, it it uh, changed as 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 the times changed a little bit. But his basic his basic. Uh, philosophy stayed the same uh phil anything else you want to tell us about jerry you got you got a gazillion memories and you got more stories than that probably but uh just anything you want to share about jerry well i just uh, people should know that uh, he he uh, lived a good life had a good life uh you know and uh had uh, he came from a very tough background he lost his, his his father when he was about four years old and never knew his dad so his bro- older brothers and his mother basically raised him, and and how he he achieved what he achieved uh, by uh, going and having some tough times and and getting fired a couple of times and this and that and uh, so it was uh, it, just the way he uh, he achieved the things he did and uh, I have great memories and uh, I'll live with those the rest of my life. Was it the uh, the the passing of his father when he was four was obviously huge, but also. Um taking the job at his alma mater at Evansville and then five days later walking away from it and then to have that tragic plane crash kill the whole team and the coaching staff, those two things, is that one of the reasons he kind of lived in the moment and, uh, and savored all those relationships? Yeah, he talked, actually talked to me quite a bit about that, how, <laughs> how uh, what happened in his life that, that, from that standpoint. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I knew it was, it was, it was known – while he was playing, that he was going to end up being the head coach at Evansville. So it was not a surprise when he got the job. 
But it was a surprise when he resigned. He he just didn't feel comfortable with it, and he ended up taking an assistant job with the the Bulls. But he just didn't feel comfortable, and so he resigned. And you're right, uh, the team uh, got in a a plane crash. And so he talked about that quite a bit and how how life... uh, you know, gives you different uh, what happens. You know, so it's 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 uh, it's an amazing thing in his life. Well, Phil, we appreciate a few minutes. Sorry for your loss because we know how close you were with uh, Jerry. But uh, you two provided jazz fans with a lot of awesome memories, and uh, I know people are savoring them right now. Okay, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. Phil Johnson, longtime jazz assistant coach, head coach of the Kings, and a former NBA coach of the year, and of course uh, Jerry Sloan's. Long-time tag team partner. They were pretty much inseparable. Coach 1A and 1B right there. And uh, even, even to the point that you, you went to Mexico with not one of them, but both of them because that's how they rolled. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. And we got off that plane, and a van came up, and both of their wives, and for Phil Johnson and Tammy, for Jerry Sloan, and the four of them got in, and then the driver looks at me and my wife, and my daughter was actually with us at the time, too. They said, get in. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, get in. We're going to take you, too. There's room for you. You're, I was told you're supposed to go. And I go, you got to be kidding me. I don't belong in that van. <laughs> there's, 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 I mean, I'm still looking. I'm a janitor's son, man. There must and have been a mistake. I got, it. I got in that van, and I rode. I, I rode with Jerry Sloan and Phil Johnson, and, and that, was, that was a highlight of my one of the highlights of my life. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Mark Eaton coming up next. He'll be uh, joining us. Stay with us. DJ and PK, Coach Jerry Sloan passing away this morning at the age of 78. Uh, we'll get the memories with Mark in just a minute. DJ and PK brought to you in part by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions, backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net.